This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 372 for Thursday, October 12th, 2023. And in today's episode, I want to talk about some new technology that can make life easier for people like myself that work remotely as their full-time job. Now, this new product is called the Vitcher XR1 AR Glasses. Now, AR glasses are not a totally new thing. There have been companies making these for a little while now. And there are AR AR headsets like the Oculus and so on. But these are a pair of glasses that look very similar to regular sunglasses. And they have a magnetic cord that attaches behind the right ear and then plugs into your iPhone via USB-C. Now, the glasses are powered entirely by your device, so they're sleek, slim, and there's no need to worry about battery life when using them, at least not for the glasses themselves. Now, I know what you're thinking, but what about my iPhone battery? Well, they have an adapter that can allow you to plug the glasses in and also have another USB-C port that is for power delivery to keep your phone charged at the same time. Now, the Vitcher is basically a wearable external monitor, which is extremely handy for someone like myself who works remotely in the IT world. While wearing them, I can have a 120-inch monitor about a few feet in front of me, which is extremely handy because anytime I travel, I'm limited to just my 14-inch MacBook Pro monitor. Now, this virtual monitor is capable of allowing me to multitask with multiple windows open at the same time with, say, one having Microsoft Teams up and another running Safari and another one could have my terminal window open for working on Linux servers, etc., etc. So very handy to have all of those capabilities without taking up any physical real estate. Now, like I said, the main way that this is going to benefit my remote work is when we go up north to visit our kids and grandkids. I can have a large monitor to work on without hooking up to one of my son's TVs or disrupting everyone else. I don't want you to think that this device only works with iPhone or Apple devices. It also works with Androids as well as Nintendo Switch and other game consoles. They have an entire list of compatible devices on their website which includes iPhones, iPads, MacBook Pro, Mac Mini, MacBook Air, Nintendo Switch. I believe it works with Xbox and PlayStation as well. Now, if you remember 
Back in June of this year, Apple held their normal worldwide developer conference event, as they always do. And this is when they announce their new software for the fall, as well as they often announce new hardware. Now, this past summer, Apple announced their new Vision Pro AR VR headset that will be available starting early 2024. Now, this is different than the Vitcher. The product is basically a computer that you wear on your face, and it is big, bulky, and has a battery pack that only lasts for one to two hours or it has to be plugged directly into AC power. Now, the Apple product looks similar to VR headsets that people use for playing video games, and it basically resembles a pair of goggles, or the headsets worn in the movie Ready Player One. Now, in addition to the Vision Pro being large and bulky and having a battery pack, which is cumbersome. It also has an extremely hefty price tag of $5,000. Now, the Vitcher XR1 might not be a full computer that you wear on your face, but it's also more sleek, more streamlined, and weighs much less at only 78 grams. And... The Vitcher can also stream Netflix and Disney Plus, as well as YouTube and Hulu and a whole bunch of other things. And another great thing about the Vitcher is that if you wear prescription glasses, as I do, reading glasses only, that is, they have an adjustment on the top for each side to adjust for your vision. And additionally, you can adjust them using a button on the left side that allows you to darken the background around your, your uh, vi uh, virtual screen so that you can better see it and have less distractions, which is super handy. And they also have built-in speakers made by Harman, which allows you to hear any audio without disturbing anyone around you. Now, I'm going to take a break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. You can visit the homepage at liamphotographypodcast.com for show notes and links. If you have questions, comments, or requests for topics or future guests you'd like to hear on the show, you can email me at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. Also, be sure to check out the liamphotographypodcast.com Facebook group, and you can find me on Twitter at liamphotoatl. You can tweet the show just just insert the hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. Okay, so when it comes to the Vitcher XR1, it has another big advantage over the Apple Vision Pro, and that's its price tag. The Vitcher is priced at only $500 to $650, depending on which package you get. And by that, I mean what additional accessories you get with it because there are several now i've reached out to bitcher uh via their instagram channel to see if i could get a loaner model to try out and they said they passed my info along to their marketing team but i haven't heard back from the marketing team yet but it's only been a day or so now i am planning to probably buy a pair myself 
since I learned about it from a YouTube tech channel that I have followed for years, and the guy that runs the channel is very reputable. And to be honest, I'm really excited about getting one of these for my IT work, as it will make my life so much easier, especially when traveling or when I just want to relax on our front deck during the summer months and enjoy the weather while still having a large screen to work on. Now, I've also looked at the Unreal AR glasses. Uh, now, the Unreal are a little bit less expensive than the Vitcher, but I've read a lot of reviews about them on Amazon and a lot of people complaining that their companion app is very buggy and has a lot of glitches and a lot of issues. And the other thing that makes me debate whether or not I'd even want to try the Unreal AR glasses is the fact that their glasses don't have any kind of vision adjustment. So if you need if you wear prescription glasses, you've got to buy a special insert that you wear in addition to their AR glasses. And that insert, you put your prescription lenses in that. You have them made and put into that separate piece, and they can cost hundreds of dollars, um, which is not something that I like the idea of. You know, having to wear two, basically two pair of glasses at the same time, to me, is just stupid. I don't know why the makers of the Enreal AR glasses didn't think to put some sort of um, vision correction into their AR glasses like Vitcher did. To me, it would just made a lot more sense. Now, the downside about getting the Vitcher glasses is uh, the company is headquartered in California, according to their website. But that's, I guess, just their business offices, because everything I read online said that when you place an order, it takes at least two weeks to get the actual glasses because they ship directly from the factory where they're made, which is in China. So that part I'm not too happy about because, you know, then you're laying out all that money up front. You got to wait two or more weeks to actually receive the product because the ship's from China and you can't get them on Amazon. I've already looked and it shows they're listed on there, but it shows currently unavailable, which is a bit of a bummer. Now, the uh, the end real glasses you can get on Amazon and even get next day delivery. But like I said, I'm. I'm a bit gun shy about trying theirs just because of the fact that their companion app is so buggy and uh, theirs only works with the M1 and M2 Silicon Max, which is fine. That's what I have. That's all the, the hardware I have is all Apple Silicon based. Um, but I just think it's kind of short sighted of them to only support one hardware architecture. You know what I mean? Uh, the Enreals will work with like Steam Decks as well. Um, which I guess are gaming consoles of some kind, but it just seems silly to me that Enreal did not expand their system's compatibility to be more compatible with more devices like Vitcher did, because Vitcher's is compatible with a whole host of smartphones and game consoles and PCs and Macs and all kinds of stuff. So, um, that's why the Vitcher is really the route I want to go. And, from reading reviews about both platforms, the Vitcher just seems to be a better system, even if it's a few dollars more expensive. Um, it just seems to be the better route to go. So that's the way that I'm looking to go. But I'll, I'll keep you posted on that. I may have an update for you on the whole situation next week. We'll just have to wait and see. 
Now, on another side note, this past weekend, one of the managers that I worked with at my old IT job at Virgin Orbit reached out to me and asked for my assistance in accessing some of the data off their old Linux servers. Um, I guess the parent company, Virgin Global, is trying to access the intellectual property data, so they wanted me to work for them as a freelance contractor from now until the end of next August. And the money's really good. So I said yes. And now basically I have two IT jobs. Um, it'll be a lot of extra hours, but we'll also give Tita and I a lot of extra money. So I will hopefully have enough money to pay off my new Corolla way early and also get myself finally a GFX 100S as well. So that would be totally awesome and exciting. But for now, let's go ahead and take a look at a couple of news stories for this week from our good friends over at Petapixel. Rare Leica O-Series camera sells for a whopping $3.7 million U.S. dollars. A rare Leica O-series camera sold, uh, from 1923 was sold at the Wetzlar Camera Auctions on October 7th for 3.5 million euros or approximately 3.69 million U.S. dollars. The Leica O-series camera is one of between 22 and 25 units that were produced in 1923 for testing purposes and is one of only 16 that remain in existence today. The Wetzlar Camera Auctions expected the incredible O-Series camera to sell at auction for between 1.5 and 2 million euros or approximately 1.58 to 2.11 million US dollars. At a 3.5 million hammer price, the camera's performance undoubtedly exceeded expectations, becoming the second most expensive camera ever sold at auction. The model sold over the weekend is number 121 in a series that started at 101. The auction house explains that it is unclear precisely how many Leica O-series cameras were made because the delivery list in Leica's archive has empty lines for numbers 116, 121, 123, 124, and 125. Number 121 has its original black paint and it is in very nice condition. The lot number, number 5, included a 5-element uh as Stigmat 50mm f4.5 lens with very clean optics. The lot started at 800,000 euros or 544,560 dollars, excuse me. Quote, exactly 100 years after this camera was manufactured here in Wetzlar, we are now able to auction it here at Wetzlar. An honor for our auction house and, of course, an absolute highlight in our company history, says Wexlar Camera Auctions co-owner Lars Net Netapil. The Leica O-Series camera is especially interesting, not only because it is the predecessor of Leica cameras, but because it, alongside the, alongside the UR Leica, is the forebearer of all 35mm cameras. While the Leica O-Series lot sold for the highest sum, plenty of other rare and special cameras and lenses earned huge hammer prices in the WCA. 
For example, after starting at 80,000 euros, just under 84,750 US, a prototype Leica 3C from 1934 sold for 400,000 euros or 423,000 US. A Leica M3 that was used by the German military uh, in a NATO olive green paint from 1966 sold for 162,500 euros or 172,150 US dollars after starting at just 30,000 euros or 31,780 US dollars. Rare black painted Leica M cameras have been a smash hit with collectors in recent years, and the latest auction proved that the market is still booming. An early black-painted Leica M2 with a pair of matching black-painted lenses sold for 162,500 euros or 172,150 US dollars. And a very early black-painted Leica M4 with a Leicabit MP rapid winder sold to the highest bidder at 112,500 euros or 119,180 US dollars. Highly sought after Leica lenses performed well too. Two prototypes of early Sumalux lenses from around 1960 sold for huge sums. A 35mm prototype went for 275,000 euros or 291,330 US dollars, while a 50mm prototype Sumalux sold for 137,500 uh, euros or 145,670 American dollars. A test sample of the famous first ever Lights Knock Deluxe lens, a name that still carries a significant weight with photographers, went to a new owner after they paid 137,500 euros or 145,670 US dollars. So, wow, they did make a lot of money. Uh, 1200 millimeter lights telecron was auctioned for 93,750 euros or 99,320 US dollars. The super telephoto lens was created as an experimental lens for the 1972 Munich Olympics. Only three were ever built and the lens never made it into commercial production. The Wetzlar camera auctions feature spectacular cameras and lenses from brands other than Leica. This time, a Nikon Super Telephoto zoom from the 1990s with a unique 1200 to 1700mm zoom range was sold for an incredible 425,000 uh, euros or 450,240 American dollars, the highest price ever for a Nikon lens at any auction. The next Wexlar Camera Auctions event is scheduled for October 12th, 2024, and consignments are now being accepted. So, wow, definitely some eye-watering amounts of money being spent on these pieces of photography gear at the Wetzlar Auction. Not surprising, there are a lot of avid collectors of vintage camera gear. I'm a collector of, of old and vintage camera gear myself. But I don't have pockets quite that deep. But congratulations to all of the wealthy and lucky winners of those auctions. Best Retro Cameras in 2023. Merriam-Webster defines retro as fashionably nostalgic or old-fashioned. With the rise in popularity of shooting on film over the past few years and the extraordinary success of instant cameras among the general populace, I think it is fair to say that retro cameras are likewise lusted after by many. 
Due to viral TikTok videos, Fujifilm had to pause orders for the X100V because they couldn't handle any more. That camera has been out of stock at most retailers for a very long time. And I believe a fair part of the online hype around the X100 series is due to its retro appeal. With that said, we present you with the best retro cameras you can buy in 2023, broken down into several categories, primarily by sensor size. All right, so at a glance, the best medium format retro camera, the Hasselblad 907X50C, as it's one of my favorite camera releases in recent years, I'm pretty excited to be able to justifiably put this camera on a best list. One of the most beautiful digital cameras ever made, the Hasselblad 907X50C, is a direct homage to the cameras that made the Swedish company legendary. Hasselblad considers the camera a throwback to its 500 series V-System cameras, and it is in many ways, but it strikes me as more of a fusion of the 500 series and the SW or super-wide models, specifically the 903 and the 905 SWC, especially when fitted with the optical viewfinder. The Hasselblad 907X50C is actually composed of two components. The first is the 907X camera body itself, which Hasselblad touts as the smallest medium format camera ever made. In reality, the 907X is nothing more than a mount. There is no sensor or really anything else other than the XCD mount and a shutter release button mounted on the camera's front side. The second component is the CFV250C digital back, like uh, that, like previous CFV backs, uses the V-System interface. This means the CFV250C can be attached to virtually any film Hasselblad made after 1957, including popular models like the 500C and the 500CM. The back contains the same 44 by 33 millimeter 50 megapixel CMOS sensor found in the Hasselblad X1D and X1D2, Fujifilm GFX 50S2, and many other models. It's an old sensor that debuted in April of 2014 in the Pentax 645Z, but it is still a phenomenal performer with a 16-bit color uh, an ISO sensitivity range from 100 to 25,600 in Hasselblad's natural color solution. It produces images with some of the best dynamic range, color, and tonality this side of the larger 54 by 40 millimeter sensors. HNCS results in what I consider the best color in the industry, smooth tonal transitions with extremely natural color. Each back is individually calibrated by Hasselblad. The CFV50C2 does contain one significant change over the CFV50C. The rear screen is now a tilting 3.2 inch 2.4 million dot touchscreen. This goes a long way toward enhancing the retro appeal as the LCD screen can now be used like a waist level finder. When combined with the 907X, the total package is capable of using Hasselblad's newest and impressive mirrorless XC, or XCD lenses, the Hasselblad 907X optical viewfinder, a nice throwback to the Hasselblad SWC finder, gives you the frame lines for the XCD 21mm, 35mm, and 45mm lenses, as well as a center cross point for alignment. 
Furthermore, the Hasselblad 907X control grip is an excellent accessory for a more ergonomic experience. It features a shutter release button, a control dial for aperture or shutter speed, a joystick for AF point selection, and four buttons to access the menu, which can be navigated with the joystick, image playback, auto and manual focus, and an AFD. All four buttons are entirely customizable. Considering the price for a used CFV50C is around $5,000 to be able to purchase this uh, improved CFV50C2 along with the 907X for only $6,399 is actually a hell of a deal. Plus, it's simply a gorgeous camera. Now, the best full-frame retro camera, the Nikon ZF. Released just last month, the Nikon ZF is the company's full-frame follow-up to its highly popular Nikon ZFC released over two years ago. While many have likened its appearance to the fantastic Nikon FM2 35mm SLR, I think it bears more in common with the Nikon FA right down to the subtle grip in, on the front and the PSAM switch on the top. The Nikon ZF is an important step in the Nikon Z line, not only because of its stylish appearance, but also because it's the first lower-end full-frame Nikon to inherit features from the Z9 and Z8. This includes the same X-Speed 7 processor found in those cameras, as well as the subject recognition and Nikon's famous 3D tracking. Features like IAF tracking are several steps up from the Z6 and 7.2 models, and the ZF is the first Nikon to feature a high-resolution pixel shift mode, which utilizes the camera's in-body image stabilization, or IBIS, to create either a full-color 24-megapixel file or, uh, from four shots, a 96-megapixel 16-shot file or a 32-shot full-color 96-megapixel file. The IBIS itself has also been updated to compensate for up to eight stops of camera shake, and as a very nice touch, the IBIS is now linked to the autofocus point rather than the center of the image. It uses the same 3.69 uh, million dot EVF in the Z6 and 7, which is fine to me. It's a beautiful EVF with a lovely 0.8 times magnification. The rear LCD is a 2.1 million dot fully articulating touchscreen, which means you can hold it inward if you desire a more filmic shooting experience. There's one UHS-2 SD card slot and a second micro SD card slot, though unfortunately it is only UHS-1. Now, why in God's name did they do that? Come on, Nikon. What is wrong with you? Built out of magnesium alloy except a few plastic pieces for the Wi-Fi and dust and drip resistance, sealing the camera is impressively well built with a significant amount of heft for its size. It's just an all-around solid-feeling camera, precisely the impression you want to exude if you're mimicking a vintage Nikon SLR. Its $2,000 price tag makes the Nikon ZF an incredibly appealing camera for many users, particularly given the lovely new tech that has trickled down from the higher-end models. Petapixel's more thorough review of the Nikon ZF can be found at the accompanying link, which you can find in this article in today's show notes. Best APS-C Retro Camera, the Fujifilm X-T5 Released late last year, the Fujifilm X-T5 maintains the same general uh, get-stalled that began with 2014's Fujifilm X-T1. 
A shutter speed dial and ISO dial adorn the camera's top, while most Fujinon lenses are fitted with an aperture ring. This makes it about as classic as it can get. All basic settings are available to the user as physical controls, making for a highly tactile experience and allowing exposure parameters to be set without even turning the camera on. The X-T5's 40-megapixel X-Trans 5 BSI sensor makes it the highest-resolution APS-C camera on the market and pushes it into the high-end full-frame territory. Of course, a sensor with such an immense pixel density will demand the most of your lenses. As such, Fujifilm issued a list of lenses it suggests most suitable for the Fujifilm X-H2, which shares the same sensor. Paired with the new X-Processor 5, which Fujifilm claims possesses twice the processing power of the X-Processor 4, the X-T5 has some pretty serious photo and video chops. A 425-point hybrid autofocus system combined with an AI adaptive algorithm yields the best autofocus performance in a Fujifilm camera, this side of the stack sensor X-H2S. Subject recognition and tracking, in particular, have been dramatically improved. An impressive 15 frames per second is possible with the mechanical shutter, and swapping to the silent electronic shutter bumps that to 20 frames per second. The latter also boosts, or boasts an incredible maximum speed of 1 180 thousandths of a second, though you'll still be somewhat limited by the sensor's readout time for quickly moving subjects. Significantly upgraded in-body image stabilization, or IBIS, allows the 5-axis sensor shift system to compensate for up to 7 stops of camera shake. The IBIS system can now create an exceptionally high-resolution 160-megapixel file using the pixel shift multi-shot mode. On the video side, the X-T5 can internally record up to 6.2K and 10-bit 422H265, up to 30 frames per second and oversampled 4K. External 12-bit ProRes RAW or Blackmagic RAW is also available with the appropriate recorder, while F-Log and F-Log 2 can be applied both internally and externally. Rounding out the new features are a 1.84 uh, million dot three-way tilting touchscreen LCD and a 3.69 million dot OLED electronic viewfinder with a 0.8 times magnification and 100 frames per second refresh rate. The NPW235 battery is separated for up to 680 shots and the mechanical shutter promises 500,000 actuation lifespan. It is worth noting that the X-T5 has improved on prior iterations of the X-T line in just about every way, but for whatever reason, it no longer supports a vertical battery grip. Should that be a critical part of your shooting, you might want to look elsewhere. Best Micro Four Thirds Retro Camera, the OM System OM5. The OM5 is almost definitely the least retro camera on this list, but my love for Micro Four Thirds would not allow me to omit it as a category. I can only hope OM Digital updates the discontinued Olympus Pen F because that camera was and still is in many ways truly phenomenal, albeit overpriced at the time. Despite the OM system, OM5's more modern features, the body design is still extremely similar to the original Olympus EM5, which itself was modeled after the highly or hugely successful Olympus OM1, OM2 35mm cameras. Uh, 
despite the OM system, OM5's more modern features. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got myself distracted there. The OM5 is not much more than an OM rebrand of the Olympus uh, EM5 Mark III with a few welcome new uh, computational features. This isn't a bad thing. I own and love the EM5 M5 Mark III. It is a compact little beast of a camera full of nifty features, fast to focus, rugged, and features incredible in-body sensor stabilization. But around the same 20.4 megapixel micro four third sensor in the EM5 Mark III and many other Olympus cameras, the OM5 is dust proof and splash proof with an IP53 rating. Its five axis IBIS can compensate for up to seven and a half stops when combined with optical image stabilization, a 121 point Cross-type phase detection AF system allows quick and speedy autofocus in almost any situation. The OM5 gains the same 50-megapixel handheld high-resolution shot mode as its larger brother, the OM1, and also features live ND or neutral density, pro capture, internal focus stacking, starry sky autofocus, live bulb, and live composite. These computational features are what make OM systems stand out above the pack. You simply don't get anything like them from other cameras. Live ND is something I find particularly useful for grabbing the occasional long exposure shot, but without the worry or hassle of carrying an ND filter. The only area where the OM5 falls short is that it retains the micro USB port of the EM5 Mark III instead of moving to USB-C, and it does not have the newer and much nicer menu system that debuted in the OM system OM1. I have no idea why OM Digital didn't update either of these. Micro USB is particularly annoying in the year 2023, but nonetheless, it is still a fantastic camera packed full of features and image potential. Pair this camera with a Panasonic Leica uh, 15 1.7 DG Sumilex Olympus 25 1.8 and an Olympus 45 1.8 and you have yourself a lovely compact kit of 30 50 and 90 millimeter equivalents it's also a perfect companion for the petite and optically phenomenal Olympus 12-45 f4 pro if you need a more substantial grip for larger lenses the Olympus ECG5 is there the best compact retro camera, the Leica Q3. The Leica Q series, which debuted in 2015, is one of the German company's best line of products like the company's legendary M-Bodies. The Leica Q3 offers direct physical access to controls, a shutter speed dial on the camera's top plate, and an aperture ring at the front of the lens. The focus ring is one of the best I have ever used on a mirrorless camera. It may be focused by wire, but it that isn't immediately obvious. Focus is nicely dampened with linear travel and hard stops at each end. Past the infinity mark is a, a detent for autofocus, making it very easy to switch back and forth, even with the camera turned off. There's also a toggle at the base of the lens that shifts the lens into macro mode. The 60.3 megapixel backside illuminated image sensor, uh, full frame sensor, is the best Leica has ever put into a camera. It no doubt shares technical underpinnings with the Sony A7R5, A7, uh, 4, and 5, so it's probably no surprise that the Q3 matches the dynamic range of those cameras. 
However, in my test, the Leica implementation of the sensor holds the edge above ISO 6400 or so due to reduced chroma chroma noise. It also features a base ISO of 50, one stop less than Sony's ISO 100, allowing for superior color, tonality, and noise. The Leica Q3 features Leica's triple resolution technology, allowing users to choose pixel binned 36 megapixel and 18 megapixel in addition to the full 60 megapixel resolution. Though Leica claims enhanced dynamic range in these modes, my test found no advantage to the in-camera binned photos versus downsampling in post, but it's an excellent option, especially if you want to save some storage space. Because the Q3 headlines a fixed focal length of 28mm lens, the 60 megapixel sensor offers the very useful benefit of a variety of crop modes. 1.25x simulating 35, 1.8x simulating 50mm, 2.7x simulating 75mm, and 3.2x simulating 90mm. These would result in images with 38.6, 18.5, 8.3, and 5.9 megapixels, respectively. New to the Q3 is a beautiful 5.76 million dot OLED EVF with a respectable 0.79x magnification, a very welcome tilting rear touchscreen, phase detection autofocus, as well as CDAF and DFD, DCI 8K up to 30p with a 10-bit 420 internally, ProRes 422HQ internally, and a new Maestro 4 processor. The body is IP52 rated against dust and moisture and improved wireless connectivity, including both Wi-Fi 2.4 GHz and 5 GHz, as well as Bluetooth 5.0 LE, along with a USB-C Gen 2 port allows for either wireless or wired tethering using Leica's excellent Photos app. One thing that hasn't changed from the original Q and the Q2 is the lens, and that's perfectly understandable because it's a great optic. While the camera itself features no in-body sensor stabilization, optical image stabilization in the lens is good for several stops of compensation. With an f1.7 aperture, the Q3's Sumalex lens is one of the fastest ever in a fixed-lens camera. Combined with the best-in-class full-frame sensor and OIS, the total package makes for a phenomenal camera, even in very low light. Sure, the Q3 is expensive, but what like it isn't? It probably offers the best value proposition of any of the company's offerings, given that you get both an excellent body and high-quality Sumalux lens. With the addition of a tilt screen, gorgeous EVF, and a fantastic 60-megapixel sensor, there really isn't anything I feel like the Q3 is missing at this point, other than perhaps IBIS. Best premium retro camera, the Leica M11 and M11 Monochrome. I was fortunate enough to review Leica's newest M-series camera when it was released in January 2022. Since then, I've spent quite a bit of time with it on three more occasions, so I feel comfortable saying that the Leica M11 is the best digital camera the company has ever made and one of my favorite cameras to use. The M11 features virtually the same body as the M10 line, but the antiquated removable bottom plate is now gone. The battery uses the same design found in the Q, SL, and S series cameras, which is easily my favorite implementation on any camera. The larger capacity battery, along with the camera's Maestro 3 processor, gives the M11 some truly incredible battery life, which is all the more impressive considering the sensor is now always active for metering. 
The menu is typically minimalist Leica in design, and the camera contains 64 gigabytes of internal SSD memory. An easily accessible USB-C port simplifies tethering, charging, and data transfer. The sensor is the same as found in the Leica Q3 with newly designed cover glass and a micro lens array to improve edge acuity and reduce color shift with wide angle lenses. Like the Q3, the M11 features the in-camera pixel bend options of 36 and 18 megapixels. It also now includes an electronic shutter option of up to 1 1 16 thousandths of a second which is handy if you exceed the mechanical shutter's one four thousandths of a second maximum. However, bear in mind the sensor readout is somewhere between one-tenth of a second and one-fifteenth of a second, so the e-shutter is only suitable for relatively static subjects. Released with the M11 is the new Leica Visoflex 2 EVF with a 3.69 million dots in both high magnification and high eye point, that can tilt 90 degrees upward with several stops in between. It's an outstanding EVF and a pleasure to use even with glasses, though the refresh rate seems to be a little on the low side. That hardly bothers me with a camera like this, though. The Leica M11 monochrome is identical to the M11 with two exceptions. The internal memory has been bumped to 256 gigabytes, and more crucially, it eschews the RGGB color filter array over the sensor. This allows the sensor to collect true luminous data and roughly twice as much light, which bumps the base ISO from 64 to 125. Images will also display higher pixel acuity and greater perceptual resolution, as there is no filtration or demosaicing. Of course, you lose the ability to manipulate the luminance values of specific color channels in post. And unlike bare array sensors where you can recover highlight data from reconstructed channels, if you only blow one channel, e.g. red, once data is clipped here, that's it. Despite these disadvantages, there's still something incredibly appealing about monochrome. Technically, achromatic cameras and the files are gorgeous once edited. No, the M11 and M11 monochrome don't have the flexibility of other cameras on this list. There's no autofocus, telephoto primes are challenging to use with the rangefinder, and lenses below 28 millimeters require either live view on the LCD, the EVF, or an accessory optical viewfinder. Rangefinder coupled zooms don't exist unless you consider the Tri-Elmars zoom lenses. Even if you do, they can't function as a typical zoom with the frame lines. Close-up macro photography likewise requires live view or a bulky Visoflex bellows. Yet at the same time, there's nothing else quite like using a rangefinder camera. The Leica M11, with its genuinely phenomenal battery life, best-in-class sensor, and the new EVF make for the most mature M-series camera to date. And so there is the master list from Petapixel of the very best retro cameras as of 2023. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request 
request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap episode 372 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing an Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be listening to our podcast. Also, stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, and turn on all notifications so you'll be notified each time a new video is released. And you definitely don't want to miss out on the notifications because I will be announcing my next contest in the next week or so. So you definitely don't want to miss out on that and how you can enter for your chance to win. I want to thank you all once again for your time and your listening to the show. And we will see you again next Thursday.